Welcome to this podcast on Zimbabwe by ICH, the Institute for Continuing History. The Institute is a professional research body that investigates acts of state-sponsored or communal violence which continue to have a major impact on the lives of individuals and nations. This series, entitled Smooth Lies and Sharp Knives, focuses on the events that led to mass killings in the Matabidiland region of Zimbabwe during 1983 and 1984. For those who are unfamiliar with the places, parties and politicians mentioned in this episode, please see the ICH website for a primer on 1980s Zimbabwe. The so-called Entumbano disturbances of November 1980 and February 1981, during which the armed wings of ZANU and ZAPU fought in Bulawayo, are often said to be among the most important events leading to the Kukurahundi massacres of 1983 and 84. And so they were, but not in the way Mugabe and others would want us to believe. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. The website of the Institute for Continuing History is continuinghistory.org. What prompted the Kukurahundi, during which thousands of Ndebele-speaking civilians were murdered by Robert Mugabe's North Korean-trained soldiers. There's a persistent view in some circles that the killings, while regrettable, were a response to a complex and escalating threat to the existence of the Mugabe government. The idea that underwrites this view is that ZANU-PF was fundamentally defensive in the early years of independence. Faced with a multitude of foes who remained strong after a negotiated end to the Rhodesian Civil War, it's argued that the regime was obliged to be cautious and reactive in the 1980s. Nothing could be further from the truth. When Mugabe and ZANU-PF took office in April 1980, they were, certainly, faced with powerful enemies. That is incontestable, though we must look carefully at how Mugabe handled these threats during the first two years of Zimbabwe's independence, and how such threats became progressively weaker during that period. In other words, it's misleading to draw a direct line or make a direct connection between events such as Entumbane and the alleged need to deploy five brigade two years later, in early 1983. That's the ZANU-PF line. But it's false, because there were enormous changes during 1981 and 1982. Changes which decreased the threat to the government, rather than increasing it. So what were the threats facing ZANU in April 1980. Nkormo and ZAPU had, on paper, been allies of ZANU during the war, 
but the two parties were, in reality, bitter rivals whose often violent relationship went back to the 1960s. After independence, this hostility was intensified by Nkormo's belief that the elections of February 1980 were stolen by Zanu, while on the Zanu side there was a conviction that Nkormo was a sore loser who would use Zipra to mount a coup if an opportunity arose. Another threat to Zanu was posed by the Rhodesians, who had been shooting Mugabe's guerrillas in the field right up to election day and who retained a formidable military machine after independence. Behind the Rhodesians stood the South African Defence Force, the SADF, which had actively assisted in the fight against the nationalists. Mugabe's approach to the white problem was to introduce a policy of reconciliation while undermining Rhodesian strength through a process of military integration. That project was remarkably successful. Senior members of the Rhodesian Security Forces and Intelligence Service were persuaded to serve the ZANU-PF government, and most did so loyally. Meanwhile, the most important elements of the Rhodesian forces, namely the Rhodesian Officer Corps and white infantry units, voted themselves out of existence by resigning en masse. By the end of 1980, the Rhodesian military was finished as a unified fighting force. Mugabe's strategy for Zapu and Zipra was the opposite of the one he had taken with the whites. Whereas he pursued reconciliation with the whites, there was an undeclared policy of provocation in place for Nkormo and his people. The aim was to humiliate and inflame Zapu and Zipra and create a confrontation. This has often been poorly understood, but historical documents show a clear pattern of deliberate incitement by ZANU-PF during 1980. There are many examples, and they began even before Independence Day in mid-April. Forming a government of national unity, Mugabe offered the presidency to Nkomo, a powerless ceremonial position that both men despised. After Nkomo refused, he was given the Home Affairs Ministry, which was stripped of some of its most important functions, including domestic intelligence. That function was given to Emerson Munangagwa, who was appointed Minister of State Security. Another humiliation was handed out on Independence Day, while Mugabe and foreign dignitaries enjoyed centre stage at Rufaro Stadium, Nkomo was sent to the back benches, where he could not be seen by the crowd. The provocations continued unrelentingly in the New Zimbabwe. The ZANU rank and file, often in collusion with more senior leaders, embarked on a campaign of violence against the supporters of ZAPU and other black opposition parties. They were often joined in this by members of ZANLA. A few days after the independence celebrations, police commissioner Peter Allen told the British that ZANU supporters had, and I'm quoting here, 
had taken strong exception to T-shirts which carried the emblems of other parties, unquote. And he said that the trouble in the townships was the worst it had been since the 1960s. The aggression at grassroots level did not ease over subsequent months. In July, Commissioner Allen reported that, quote, the internal security situation in the country is in many ways more difficult than it had been during the war, given the number of incidents involving theft, abduction and assault, unquote. 80% of those who had been jailed for these offences were Zanla personnel. Alam also noted that a group of Zani ministers, of whom Munangagwa was apparently one, were, quote, gunning for Nkormo in cabinet and regularly tried to laugh him down, unquote. The British High Commissioner, Robin Byatt, reported to London that Mugabe had set himself since the election to reassure the white community, but that the cohesion of the precarious Zanu-Zapu relationship had, he remarked, got worse since independence. Although he was favourably disposed to Mugabe, Bayat was nevertheless forced to concede that this increasing tension was caused by Zanu. He outlined what he called a chain of events that included the unequal division of ministerial positions and the, quote, witch hunt of Zapu supporters by Zanu wild boys in the townships. Bayat wrote that the Zapu and Zipra leadership had become, quote, apprehensive as well as angry, and some began muttering about taking action if they were pushed too far, unquote. The British High Commissioner felt that Mugabe himself was, quote, anxious to diffuse matters, unquote. Not the first time that the British representative was to be fooled by Zimbabwe's Prime Minister. To the contrary, Mugabe was aware of the anger that was building within Zapu and sought to fan the flames. In the middle of 1980, his ministers began to accuse Zipra of having dissidents who were engaging in well-coordinated bandit violence as a part of a plan to overthrow the government. It's from about this time that the word dissident began to be used frequently. These allegations generated fury within Zapu and Zipra, given that they came against the backdrop of Zanla's widespread violence since independence, as well as the strenuous efforts that had been made by the Zipra hierarchy to deal with the relatively few ill-disciplined soldiers in their own ranks. The British also observed that there was dissatisfaction developing in Zapu within Cornwall because he was seen to be bending the knee to Zani, and he came under increasing pressure to resist ZANU-PF provocations. In June 1980, Nkormo met secretly with the South Africans to ascertain whether they would remain on the sidelines if a military conflict broke out between Zipra and Zanla. He told them that he would, and I'm quoting here, he would like to see a peaceful solution to the political differences in the country, but chances of that happening were slim. The military leaders of both Zipra and Zanla were by no means satisfied with the current state of affairs and could tell that the issue would be settled 
militarily either way. The politicians, tasked with finding a peaceful solution to the differences, were no longer interested in peace. Unquote. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History. Written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. This series, entitled Smooth Lies and Sharp Knives, focuses on the events that led to mass killings in the Matabeleland region of Zimbabwe during 1983 and 1984. The website of the Institute for Continuing History is continuinghistory.org. Time was to show that Nkormo toyed with the idea of military action on a number of occasions, but every time a showdown loomed, he sought a political resolution. Mugabe, on the other hand, pressed on. The provocation intensified. ZBC Radio persistently glorified Zanla's contribution to the liberation struggle and poured scorn on Zipra's efforts. And no meaningful attempt was made to rein in Zanla's excesses, which increased as local government elections approached. In July, the police confided to diplomats that they had no control within 60 kilometres of Zanla camps and that Zanla now accounted for 85% of politically motivated violence. In his first visit to a Zanla camp since independence, a visit that had come in the wake of rampant violence at that location, Mugabe told a closed meeting at Mutoko that his men should, quote, keep their gunpowder dry for Zipra, unquote. Zapu's anxieties about the atmosphere of impunity around Zanla hit a new high in September 1980 when the government announced that more than 15,000 guerrillas from both armies would be moved from rural bases into Harare, where they would be located side by side. A similar camp would be established at Entumbane in Bulawayo. Nkomo was deeply upset, telling a colleague that he found himself in an impossible situation. Zapu believed that Zanu was trying to translate Zanla's dominance of the Shona-speaking rural areas into the towns, which until then had been a sphere of more open political contestation. There was also a belief that the decision was a strategic military move in preparation for a clash with Zipra. Mugabe seems to have been partially motivated by political pressures within ZANU, that is, to bring the boys in from the bush and provide them with proper accommodation. Yet, a further escalation of tension between Zanla and Zipra certainly suited his broader purposes. South African intelligence shows that Mugabe was purposefully engineering a decisive military confrontation. In October, he confided his plans to a member of the ZANU Central Committee who, unknown to the Prime Minister, was passing information to the South Africans. The source reported that Mugabe had said the following, as far as a possible civil war in the country was concerned, his wish was for it to happen as soon as possible. 
He foresaw that war would break out before December. He wanted it to happen as soon as possible in order to put an end to the rumours once and for all and also in order for Nkomo to be convincingly overthrown on a military level. Unquote. Later in October, after returning from a trip to North Korea where he signed a deal for the training of Five Brigade, Mugabe again told the South African source that he saw war as necessary and inevitable. Quote, he repeated that he foresees civil war by December and that he would prefer to see that it does happen now and be over and done with. He also repeated that he wants to break the Matabili's power once and for all. Unquote. A fortnight later, ZANU-PF held a two-day rally in Bulawayo that was calculated to provoke a violent reaction. From the venue to the individuals involved and the nature of their speeches, this was an inflammatory operation, and they got what they wanted. Fighting exploded at Entumbane late on the second day, with 3,000 Zanla and Zipra men engaging in a series of pitched battles over 24 hours. It was brought to an end when jet fighters of the former Rhodesian Air Force flew low over the combatants, threatening to unload a barrage of rockets and bombs. This, along with orders from Nkomo to Zipra, brought the country back from the brink of civil war. Dumiso Dabengwa recalled that Nkomo had told him, quote, At all costs, this cannot continue. Please go and stop that fighting, unquote. For his part, Mugabe had made preparations to ramp up the conflict, having brought in two extra battalions which, as the British noted afterwards, had been, quote, waiting in position outside Entumbane when the fighting ended, unquote. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History. Written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. This series, entitled Smooth Lies and Sharp Knives, focuses on the events that led to mass killings in the Matabililand region of Zimbabwe during 1983 and 1984. The website of the Institute for Continuing History is continuinghistory.org. Mugabe had not obtained the war he was looking for, but recognised that relations with Zapu and Zipra were now so poor that he need only maintain the pressure to quickly manufacture another opportunity. A farm owned by Nkomo was raided in November. Nine senior Zapu officials were arrested a week later, and some of the most troublesome Zanla elements were sent to boost numbers at Entumbane. In the background, both Zanla and Zipra were stockpiling weapons. Dabengwa had brought in a trainload of armaments from Zambia and diverted them to the main Zipra base at Gwai in Matabililand North. In a later interview, he remarked that, quote, We were preparing for the worst and said, If anything happens, at least we have a base 
from which we can be able to start, unquote. British High Commissioner Byatt cabled London in December, warning of, quote, a process of escalation which is becoming dangerous, unquote. And even though he was unaware of Mugabe's explicit desire to bring about a showdown, Byatt was again compelled to conclude that ZANU bore primary responsibility for the situation. His analysis was that, quote, Much of ZAPU's recent actions, which have been worrying ZANU-PF, have been simply responses to ZANU-PF intimidation and threats, unquote. This harassment continued early in the new year. In January 1981, Mugabe downgraded Nkomo's position in cabinet, sparking a heated debate within ZAPU on how the party should respond. South African intelligence indicated that the party's politicians were, quote, still against a definite break with ZANU, while senior members of ZIPRA were, quote, of the opinion that the party had been pushed far enough and the time has come to take action. ZIPRA declared itself, quote, ready for any eventuality, including moving back to a neighbouring state, end of quote. As this debate was occurring, Mugabe travelled to Zambia to ensure that such a rear base would not be available. He persuaded ZAPU's former sponsor, Kenneth Kawunda, to distance himself from Nkomo. Mugabe had also made another crucial strategic move by this point. For most of 1980, he had pushed military integration as fast as it would go, intending to break up the Rhodesian units and spread all their forces through the battalions of the Zimbabwe National Army. But from around October 1980, he changed direction. Certain highly proficient Rhodesian units were brought under the umbrella of the ZNA, but were otherwise kept intact. Names and uniforms were altered, but their personnel and capabilities remained unchanged. These included the well-trained Rhodesian African Rifles, or RAR, and the Rhodesian Air Force, which had been used to devastating effect during the war of the 1970s. The head of the British military program observed that Mugabe had become convinced that these Rhodesian units would take orders from the government of the day in a war with Zipra. Mugabe's calculations were correct. When fighting again broke out at Entumbane in February 1981, it was the Rhodesian units that proved decisive. Reflecting on events, the South Africans concluded that, quote, Mugabe seems to have deliberately pushed Zipra to the point of open revolt. This has provided the excuse to deploy loyal forces against Zipra to break their military strength. Unquote. Zipra suffered heavy losses, particularly to their heavy armour, which had, up till then, provided them with a distinct advantage over Zanla, and any thoughts of fighting on were, again, halted by the Air Force and by the efforts of Nkomo and Dabengwa to have the men lay down arms. This was not quite the total destruction of Zipra that Mugabe was looking for, but the result was much the same. 
Zipra's command structure was already disintegrating, and Entumbane put a final nail in the coffin. Moreover, Mugabe and Munangagwa now moved rapidly to disarm Nkomo's men and disperse them into the units of the National Army. Zipra essentially ceased to exist, and references to it as a coherent, functional entity after this point, mid-1981, were not factual. Rather, Zanu continued to make such claims because it suited their false narrative, which was that Zapu represented an ongoing threat to the existence of a democratic Zimbabwe. The so-called arms caches crisis of 1982 was another chapter in this narrative, one that we'll cover in the next podcast. So, what were Mugabe's overall aims in needling Zapu throughout 1980 and provoking a showdown with Zipra at Entumbane? None of these events can be properly understood without reference to ZANU's political objectives upon taking power. It is these aims, chief among them the imposition of a one-party state within five years, that makes sense of the events which led to the onset of Gukurahundi in 1983. The focus of Mugabe's attention during the first year of Zimbabwe's independence was to eliminate Zipra because Zipra had to be disarmed before Zapu could be taken apart politically. He had ticked that box by early 1981. You have been listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. This series, entitled Smooth Lies and Sharp Knives, focuses on the events that led to mass killings in the Matabeleland region of Zimbabwe during 1983 and 1984. The next episode deals with the so-called arms caches crisis of 1982.